if you look at the world at the moment, it, it almost wants to say to those that are poor, to those that are in hunger, hey, God has forgotten you. We don't care. And, and the Canadian Food Grains Bank and, and Christians are there to say that is not true. You're actually the center of our attention. God has not forgotten you. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Welcome back to the show that explores the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. With me on the show, we have the executive director of the Canadian Food Grains Bank, Andy Harrington. Thanks for making the time. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, David. Andy, let's uh, start on a lighter note. You and I share in the fact that we're both very adventurous. You've hiked up Kilimanjaro. What do you think is the most adventurous and maybe even crazy thing you've done in your life? Now, that would be a question to ask my wife, who might have a very <laughs> different opinion on it from me. I, I would say that the Kilimanjaro thing was fun. I think motorbiking through 10 countries in Africa, two weeks after I passed my motorcycle test, uh, would probably come in there. Uh, I think living in a war zone in Bosnia for two years, working with refugees, had its moments. I, I think possibly the most adventurous thing I've ever done, though, is it's actually moving to Canada from uh, from the UK and mm. taking a leap and deciding, do I want to become a Canadian and, and finding that that was a good leap to do. So adventure is cool. And, and I think we all need to push ourselves a little bit. What initially drew you to the, the land of the Great White North? The Great White North? Uh, well, uh, lo- it's, a, it's a short and a long story. So I'll pick the short story. I've been working in Bosnia and Croatia uh, for a number of years, working in refugee uh, relief, particularly with traumatized kids just after the war there. Moved back to the UK and um, was leading a kind of national youth agency there. And the opportunity came up to move out to Vancouver to work with uh, Youth for Christ, Youth Unlimited as they are now, working with marginalized kids in places like downtown Eastside and others. And and at first I said no, because I wasn't sure if that was the right move, but over a period of reflection and my wife telling me we had to do it as well. And my kids saying, hey, does that mean we can go to Disneyland? It's closer. Um, I, I, uh, it all came down to the fact that I felt God was calling us to do that. And I've never regretted it. It's been a great move. Hmm. Oh, amazing. Thanks for your faithfulness. I think you have to be a bit of an adventurous person as a Christian at times in life. And that's certainly characteristic of your organization. Canadian Food Grains Bank calls itself a Christian response to hunger. What does that mean? Could you flush that out for us? Yeah, sure. So to give you a little bit of context of where we're at at the moment, David, we are actually in a global hunger crisis, the lack of which we haven't seen for decades, possibly ever. So before I answer about the Christian response to it, let's, tell, let's talk a little bit about hunger. We, we currently have nearly 50 million people on the edge of famine. That's up 10 million just in the last year alone. We've got 200 million people, one, kind of one level below that in acute hunger. And that, that's extremely major in the way we look at we're not talking about someone skipping a meal and feeling i'm a bit hungry what i miss breakfast we're talking about gnawing gnawing hunger how am i going to eat today and even behind that at kind of severe hunger levels last year we had 811 million people we believe that's going to go massively up so there's a huge hunger crisis in the world at the moment and a desperate need for us to respond so to answer your question about a christian response to hunger there's a human response to hunger. We should all be responding to those figures. But from a Christian's perspective, it's driven, by, it's driven by a call to justice. It's God's heart for the poor. The Bible talks about, our theologians talk about the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the poor, the orphan, the refugees. And there's over 200, sorry, 2,000 passages in the Bible that speak about poverty and social justice. And, and the Hebrew word, one of the Hebrew words for justice is a word called misfat. It occurs over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and it means treating people equitably, giving people what they're due. We see in this word and throughout Scripture that God loves and defends those 
with the least economic and, and social power, the most, the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. And he calls us to do the same. And, and if we look at hunger as a, as a real, you know, key representing aspect of what poverty looks like and, and that kind of gnawing pain that we just talked about, it's a key issue and God deeply cares about that. And that's why we must do the same. God, it's our belief that God desires no person to go hungry. So every human should respond to that. But from a Christian perspective, we, we believe we're aligning ourselves with the heart of God as we do that. Do you think there's a deeper cry for Christians as we confront this, this crisis that you've just alluded to a little bit? Yeah, I, I think there is. I, I think there's, for Christians in particular, well, I wouldn't say in particular, I think all humans, as I say, need to respond to this. But for Christians, there's a biblical imperative to stand with the poor. Um, I think Tim Keller uh, said this well. He said that um, there is... If we're trying to live in a life in accordance with the Bible, the concept and call to justice are inescapable. And he went on to say that we do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. And that kind of includes the writings of wrong. It includes feeding the, the hungry. It includes standing with the immigrants, the refugees that we, we see uh, driven by climate and conflict crises around the world. So there's a real imperative about this. And, and I think, you know, the, if you look at the world at the moment, it, it almost wants to say, to those that are poor, to those that are in hunger, hey, God has forgotten you. You know, it's, it's we don't care. And, and the Canadian Food Grains Bank and, and Christians are there to say that is not true. You're actually the centre of our attention. God has not forgotten you and we, we want to be his hands and feet in coming alongside and serving you. So I think there is a call on, on Christians for that. Let's talk about some of the factors that have driven this crisis that we're in right now. I mean, we're coming out of the COVID pandemic in a lot of ways, of course, people are still catching this, but now we're in the midst of uh, an unprecedented war in Ukraine. And of course, Russia and Ukraine are two pillars of grain countries in the world. How have, has the combination of, of COVID and this conflict really crippled into this crisis? That's a great question and an astute question. I, the way I would look at it is that we have a cascading crisis of different things. And I'd actually add climate into that as well. So you have the impacts of uh, the, the COVID pandemic. And we, we tend to think, oh, that's done now. It isn't, but we tend to think it is. The supply chain impacts have massive consequences as we are consistently seeing it. And that really has hit those that live um, on, on the margins, particularly around uh, in, in places like Ethiopia or South Sudan or Somalia. Then, of course, you you have the impact of conflict. And conflict is, you know, we're, we're focusing on Ukraine, but conflict has been growing for decades. And so there are massive conflicts across some of the most marginal countries in the world. You inject Ukraine onto that, and that has a particular in intersection because, as you rightly said, um, between Ukraine and, and Russia, you have almost a third of the world's cereal supplies. You also have some key agricultural inputs like fertilizer. Fertilizer's almost closed down. So what we're seeing at the moment in our work is that the, the loss of those supplies on top of all these other things has created a major supply issue. And it's also created an inflation issue. So we're seeing inflation here. At, I think today we were up at around 8 or 9% I saw being announced. In some of the countries we're working in, you're looking at 50 to 70% minimum. And that was as of two months ago. Now you imagine, and they don't have the social safety nets that we have. You imagine uh, you're living in, say, Peebor in South Sudan, an area that we work in. There is no social safety net for you. There is no food available. There is no means to buy them, to buy that food. And so all these things are having a terrific uh, 
confluence. I, I think what the Ukrainian situation done has done is magnified something that was already there and tipped us over into a, what is a, a massive now global hunger crisis. The access of food. I mean, we're not that far removed from supply chain disruption being such a focal point in the news, but the Black Sea being blocked by the Russians in particular has, has wreaked havoc. What does this do as far as countries being able to get food? Where do they turn to instead? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, one of the things I've heard is say, well, let's, let's turn to Canada, for example. We're, we're a great uh, grain producer, and that's true. But you can't turn it on a dime. Uh, a lot of farmers have already planned out their crops that they want for this year. And I know there's been some changes, but we don't turn on and off uh, crop supplies at, at the turn of a, you know, we're not a speedboat, we're a super tanker when it comes to this. And Canadians are being brilliant about responding and we'll do all we can. But we would just be an example of many countries. There's no easy, quick turn that you say to, to supply quick, you know, grain or cereal crops or other commodities at, at a moment's notice. So there are... Th- Three things that we can do around that. First of all, we have to end that Black Sea blockade. And a number of us in the international development sector are calling for this. The UN has been very vocal about it. The World Food Program has been very vocal about it. Uh, There are a number of countries that are calling for it as well. We have to end that Black Sea blockade. There are approximately 22 million tons of grain just stuck in silos at the moment in Ukraine and very limited ability to get that out through trains. So there there are routes that they're doing. But they're talking about maybe one twentieth that they can get out. So that would be number one. I think another thing is, as we think about this, and it's not just in Ukraine, nations have to see food security as a right uh, and not food as a weapon to be used to bring leverage. And I think we're seeing that not just in the Ukrainian and Russian situation. We're seeing that uh, across the world. We're seeing that in places like Tigray in Ethiopia, where aid convoys have been blocked. I think the final thing I'll say on this, although we might want to pick it up, You know, what we're talking about in this current crisis is immediate response. So humanitarian support for food assistance, like people are dying, we've got to get food to them. That's essential. But we also have to look at the longer term sustainability of the food systems in the world that were were largely built in a time before climate change happened at the level that that it's at. So we need to build climate resilient food systems in the the majority world. And we need to be building a lot more sustainability so that we're not just saying, hey, we're going to feed you today because there's a crisis. We're saying we're going to feed you, help you get food today, but then we're going to help you stand on your own two feet, build your own sustainability. We want to come alongside you so that when the next crisis hits, there's sustainability for you. And and that's something Food Grains is very involved in, the immediate response as well as long-term livelihood support. Wow, lots to unpack there, lots of great insights. You've really uh, debunked this, uh, this crisis well. When you talk about equitable distribution, uh, what does this look like today? If there's enough food for the world, is this like a, like a Joseph in Egypt situation where it's being all stored up in some wealthier countries? How is this panning out? Like, is the food wasting away? That Well, th- there's a lot of aspects to that question. So first of all, yeah, there is some food wasting away. And there's been some interesting moves being made here in Canada and, and in the parts of the Western world to, to ensure we're doing everything we can to use some of that food that, that gets disposed of out of places like supermarkets or others. You know, it's past its sell-by date or it didn't get sold. There's a lot of work being done here in Canada around mm-hmm. taking some of that surplus. Yeah, pig farmers can only take so much. It, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, although I'm sure pig farmers might disagree, but there you go. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of work being done to redistribute that. I was actually in a conversation recently with the owners of one of the big stadiums here in Vancouver, near where I live, uh, and, and talking about taking the food that's left over after a big night and distributing, you know, a big event night, maybe an NHL game or whatever, making sure that food is going out to those in need and, and, and figuring out supply chains so we can do that. So that's one thing. 
I think the other thing is when we talk about food security, there's kind of four pillars to it. We talk about availability, access, utilization and stability. Now, I won't bore you with all the details, but just focusing in on a currently a few of those things. We do have a situation where that there's haves and have nots. So we have rich countries and poor countries. And so there is availability of that food in the sense that there's enough if it goes around. But it's the access that we actually have problems with. And so it's giving access to some of those poorer countries, those poorer marginalized population levels, uh, groups that don't have access to it. It's, it's working supply chains and working equity so that they can have access to it. For example, ensuring that we are putting enough money into priming some of the things we've talked about in terms of longer term sustainability, ensuring that we're not creating artificial barriers through, through artificial ta- trade tariffs that are really punishing poorer countries, looking at the way in which we look at international debt. There are many, it's a, it's a lot of systemic change that needs to happen, but it is within our power to, to do it. It's actually within our power to end hunger in our generation. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You think it's possible to end hunger in our generation? I really do, David, and I, I have hope that we can do that. And, and we have a, a mission to do that. And, and we know it's not just about Canadian Food Grains Bank. It's all of us working together. But it's as simple as this. If you imagine a pie, there is more than enough pie to feed all of us. But some of us are taking massive, massive chunks out of that pie. Mm, getting a little greedy at the dessert table. Yeah, exactly. There is. It's not... It's it's a bit like the the vaccine situation that we just seem to bring it in. You know, we everybody bought up everybody who had the money bought up the vaccines, and the majority world were left to scrabble around for the scraps, and and that's not equitable. It's not right, and we see that in the food systems as well. We could end this if we took a tiny amount of the money that the world spends on its defense industry in any one year. We could end this. It's been calculated that to end world hunger. A strategic application of $36 billion in two years would do that. It could be done, but but who's going to do it? Uh, if not us, who? If not now, when? Could you offer some color to the the barrier you see today with access to some of these poorer countries? Like you just got back from Kenya. What does it look like to get food into a country like that that's hard? Yeah, I, I mean, and, and Kenya would be one of the easier ones in, in a sense. So, so Kenya okay. is, is, yeah, but no, you're right. See, When we talk about countries, we often, you know, give a global thing. But that's like talking about Canada and saying Vancouver is just the same as Winnipeg or, (laughs) you know, BC is just the same as as uh, as as Quebec. There are there are regions in every country that have haves and have not. So I was in a place called uh, Takana. Um, Takana's right up in the the north of the country um, towards the border of South uh, border of Sudan. That's an area that has had zero rainfall, very limited rainfall in the last four years. And so what I experienced there was something that looked like a, a desert. Now, it's always dry, but there was way worse than usual. Livestock, it's largely a pastoral area, so the population largely consisted of working with, uh, subsisted on working with livestock. Up to a third of the animals dying there. Massive food migration, in a sense, or climate migration. People are crossing borders to try and find forage for their animals, they're being chased out by populations, there's many wars going on over resource. Inflation, which we mentioned earlier, you know, we were seeing things like cooking oil at nearly 100% of what it was two months before we were there. And just beautiful human beings like you and the people you know and the people listening to this podcast who just look, may look different from us, but are just the same as us, made in the image of God who are struggling and suffering. And if you can imagine, I, I went and sat under a 
tree with some of the people there and heard their stories of privation. And also heard their stories of thanks because we're helping them, but they can only represent a small part of the population that is in need. There is deep, deep, deep need there. And people are on the edge of extinction if we don't do something. So that can be fixed. That can be fixed if we build climate resilient food systems. And there are ways in which we're involved in doing that. If we apply more targeted money, and not in that sense of, oh, it's a black hole that it sucks it in, but no, we can fix this if we make the right inputs, as well as making the emergency needs. It, it's in our power to do that. And, and, and there is a great need for those people there. Hmm, interesting how climate and access kind of go hand in hand in this. Very much so, yeah. I, I did want to just press you a little bit more on, on what you think we can do. There seems to be no end date on the war in Russia and Ukraine. We've already touched on how instrumental these countries have been historically for grains. Are we seeing good communication among the rest of the world to make up the difference for, for food production going into like 2023? Uh, the answer is no, for two reasons. Well, going into 2023, it might be a little different, but where we're at, at the moment is still assessing where the current things are. So the, the problem we have at the, so there's a, there's a, I'll tell you the now and I'll tell you where it could be. The, the problem we have right now is that at a time when hunger is increasing, all numbers are going up, the footprint that we're able to do with the funds we have is lowering because of that inflationary increase. So I, I talked about, you know, 9% here in Canada, we, or 8 to 9%, which is huge, massive for those of us. People are tightening, their, there are people listening to this who are really struggling. Now imagine that in a country like Ethiopia. So we did an analysis of the food baskets we've used. So, so in some of our projects, we, we have many ways to feed people. Sometimes we use cash vouchers and suppliers. Sometimes we use food baskets with a, an acceptable amount of food that will get a, a family through a month that's culturally appropriate. So back in 2019, those food baskets in Ethiopia were costing us just over $38. Uh, it, as of March this year, they were costing us nearly $64. I would imagine that they've gone up significantly through them and we're just crunching them num- since then we're crunching the numbers. So right now, you can't, like I say, you can't just turn on a tap and say, hey, let's grow more grain that we'll get out there in the next two months. The supply that's out there is out there. There's enough if we redistribute it. So the biggest thing we can do right now is we've got a, we're asking the government and we're asking Canadians to come behind us on an appeal we're about to launch to say we have to supply emergency aid right now. And in fact, I know our government is thinking a lot about that. To the second part of your question about 2023, two things to that. First of all, we want to see an end. I mean, everybody wants to see an end to this war in Ukraine. We want to be able to see those food resources not subject to blockades or artificial barriers, but the floodgates open so we can get those out. And I think as I've spoken to farmers, we, we, have, we work with farmers across Canada. We have over 220 growing projects where local communities come together and do amazing work to grow grains that we can use the proceeds of to, to feed people. I know that farmers are beginning to plan to say, okay, how do we adapt in our growing schedule for next year? What are we planning to do? Bearing in mind this global co- context that we're in. I think uh, nations are are thinking at that level as well, but there's no coordinated response. It's not like there's one person who presses the button and says, we're going to do this. It's going to be a collective thing that we need to do together. As we recognize this, this hunger crisis is with us for a while and we have to do what we can, not just for now, but to end it in the long term as well. I want to just end by asking you, I mean, it's documented that these past couple of years are the first in the last, I think, 30, that homelessness has actually gone up and, and COVID's been a big contributor to that as we've, as we've touched on. 
But I wondered, you know, a crisis like this is challenging as it is. Do you think the added exposure that this hunger crisis has gained could trigger a greater step forward? Like there could be an opportunity here, even in the midst of darkness? I do. I really, really do. I, I think for two reasons. One is it's become it's 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 helping us to understand that because of this kind of cascading crisis, that hunger is is a major outcome of poverty, both internally here in Canada and also internationally. So I think for, it's bringing that to people's attention as we're feeling that belt pinch around ourselves, even as we deal with our own issues regarding inflation here in Canada, I think it is opening people's eyes to think, well, what must it feel like in Somalia or South Sudan or Afghanistan or Yemen or any of the places where major famine is happening? And I think our job, all of us, including you, David, it's why we're doing this podcast, is to help Canadians understand that as bad as it is for us, and it's not easy, it's way worse for some of the people around the world. So I think that's helpful. I think the other thing is it's bringing it to the attention of those who have the capacity to respond at a large scale. So as well as having the Canadian public engaged and, and very engaged, actually, in, in, in trying to find solutions and, and provide finance, we're now talking about, as I said earlier, the G7 meeting to talk about a global hunger crisis. And we haven't done well enough in responding. But if we can just seize this moment and realise that as well as providing this short-term response to what is an emergency situation, there is a way for us to go forwards with building more sustainability into the system. There's a lot that can be done. The government here in Canada recently launched uh, a $5.6 billion fund around adaptation practices for how people can do a better job around the world in combating climate in agriculture. So there's a part of that, a $315 million fund called Partnering for Climate, so we're working with the Canadian government to, to form um, concepts around what that could look like across uh, the globe if we actually change the food supply system to make it more climate resilient, which is a key driver of hunger. So I, that's just one example of ways in which we can see hunger ended if we all work together. It should be a passion. And again, I, I just say to all the listeners here, imagine if it was you. An inspiring note to end on. Andy Harrington, Executive Director of the Canadian Food Grains Bank. Appreciate your time and appreciate your contributions to the greater good of this world. A pleasure being with you, David. Thank you. And if you want to double back on anything more that Andy shared about the Canadian Food Grains Bank or about the startling stats on the global food crisis, head on over to the show notes. You can find that at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at the Crossroads. A couple years ago, the Prime Minister's aspirations to help students find meaningful work during their first summer of COVID hit a bit of a roadblock. His ties to the internationally renowned charity We ended up costing him and became a bit of a saga. Don't miss my conversation with former board member Tofik Rangwala, who helps us look at We from a different perspective. Craig and Mark Kilberger were cast into the spotlight during what became known as the We Charity Scandal. And so I think a lot of people saw a side of them that involved them testifying and sort of defending their work. And I, I think a lot of people who saw that, but also people in the charitable sector, they find them hard to understand because they have approached charity in many respects with the zeal of people who run a business. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.